We play for bravery. We play for big hearts in tiny bodies. We play for the fighter within. We play for life reclaimed, disease in remission, stories rewritten. We're Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU, and we nurture the champion in every child. We fight the forces that threaten them, and we play to win. Learn how at chrichmond.org. Three, two, one. Never has there been a better time to be alive in human history. If you're not feeling it, you must discover why. Join Matthew Bolton in developing and applying a framework of objective optimism toward a flourishing life of meaning, health, and happiness. Here's your host, Matthew Bolton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mr. Brightside. I'm Matthew Bolton. This show is an interview with Dr. Fleet Mall. Dr. Mall is a very well-known and highly experienced growth mindset teacher and meditation teacher whom you'll hear about in more detail once we get in. Let me say first that I was particularly invested in speaking with Dr. Mall as I've recently begun practicing mindfulness meditation and I'm trying to find practical answers to problems I'm presently facing as a rookie practitioner. And in working with prisoners, correctional officers, and police as he does, rookies are right in his wheelhouse and I got lots of advice I'm now anxious to put to work. Another huge point of interest for me was his radical responsibility model, whose goal is expressed in his book's tagline, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. In our conversation, he breaks down what it means to take self-ownership of one's circumstances and how that's much different from accepting blame for them. And if anyone has the credibility earned through personal experience on top of his vast teaching and clinical experience, Dr. Mall also has a tremendous history, which is at once fascinating and heartbreaking, and which offers a huge context against which to test his own model's ability to help one develop the resilience necessary to spite such hardship. The model was first developed amidst his original trying experience. For the first 20 minutes of this interview, you'll be treated to a narration of this astonishing drama. We then dive into some deeply empowering ideas for the remainder of their discussion. As for mindfulness, on top of the practical advice I was given, I was excited and encouraged to learn that there are no limitations to brain development, and of not only the intellectual, mental, and emotional health benefits of mind training, but its positive impact on all aspects of health. This kind of practice is becoming more mainstream, and Dr. Mall offers great leads to anyone looking to start their own mind training, which I'm now coming to think is a minimum requirement for a good life, especially given our, at times, overwhelmingly fast-moving world. As for radical responsibility... Dr. Mall explains how we too often give away our power and offers a truly empowering alternative view. We can validate victimization, he says, but still embrace the choice to focus on taking ownership for our own circumstances. With that, and in addition to understanding our own basic goodness, a fundamental concept which I think Dr. Mall proves quite convincingly, life becomes a glorious adventure full of possibility, in his words. Our view changes everything, and Dr. Mall's trans-blame model, in addition to mindfulness practice, can help each of us transcend our culture of blame and shame. Trust me to say that while these are only a few highlights of what you can get out of this interview, they're not even necessarily the most impactful ones. There was just so much that lit up my eyes and heart and had me going, yes, during the interview, and I'm totally forgetting some big ones. But I'm here only to give an indication, not to summarize the whole interview. Alternatively, you can not trust me and see for yourself whether you ought to take my word for it in the future. I'm sure you'll see why Dr. Mall is well distinguished in his field, as I know that I took away so much that I'm very pleased to share with you now. Hi, everybody. Welcome now to our interview. I'm joined by Dr. Fleet Mall. Dr. Mall, PhD and author, is a renowned growth mindset teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world, both in person and online through HeartMind Institute. 
He's a meditation teacher, executive coach, seminar leader, and social entrepreneur who works at the intersection of personal and social transformation. Fleet is also the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Our Higher Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for, uh, in the World, for Good in the World, excuse me. Dr. Mall, thank you so much for taking the time for us today. It's a great pleasure to have you. My pleasure, Matthew. Great to be here. All right. Um, so, Dr. Mall, I, I know your backstory is well known to many, and I can imagine you may even, uh, I don't know if you get tired of telling it, but it's just such an ast- astounding story that listeners must know for context. Uh, I think with our focus today on radical responsibility, personal responsibility, including self-ownership for one's circumstances, this really sets up a lot of credibility for your position. You know, people might say, you know, self-ownership for things that happened to me, that's easy for you to say, you don't know my problems, right? And I don't want to diminish anyone's problems, and it's certainly not a competition, but I think the average listener will find it tough to relate to the extraordinary circumstances you've endured and risen above. So if you please, would you regale us with your incredible story? (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, the radical responsibility model really arose for me in in the context of uh, spending 14 years in prison myself in a federal prison on drug charges, which... Of course, it's not something I'm proud of at all, the activities that led to that. and um, But I, I do feel really good about what I did with the time when I was there. So I um, I was one of the baby boomers, uh, someone who came of age in the 1960s, who went headlong into the counterculture of that time. You know, I was kind of a classic angry young man for various reasons and family things. I mean, I had a basically good family, grew up in a good middle-class Roman Catholic family in the Midwest, but we had some alcoholism and other things. So, so anyway, by, as I was coming of age, I, I had my issues and demons and, and uh, that kind of hole in my guts and pain and they become pretty disillusioned and alienated. And I graduated from high school in 1968, which was an incredibly tumultuous year in U.S. history with the, the Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy assassinations, the Kent State killings. And so I, I would just had become really, pretty alienated. And, uh, and then I went off to a big state school and just went headlong into the counterculture of the time. And, you know, I had a dual major as being a a speaker. uh, I mean, a a spiritual seeker on the one hand, I'd always kind of had those leanings even from very young and then being involved in all the craziness of the time, the drug section, rock and roll and uh, the anti-war politics and all the rest of it. And, um, so eventually I left the country. Um, I actually, when Nixon was reelected, I just kind of, I just felt like I had to leave. And and I was also hoping to find something different. I was really wanting to escape from, from the kind of drug scene and drug culture that was going on at the time and that I was very involved with. And it kind of gotten darker. It moved from that kind of psychedelic era to a more hard drug kind of era. And, and so I left for South America and started traveling in South America, ended up buying a a native sailboat for a while and in the Caribbean and uh, lived on a boat for almost a year, then sold it, continued on down. And and I was just really looking for something real, something authentic. And I always had this idea of getting to Peru and that I would somehow found something there, which I did. It was an incredibly magical place. And I remember the first time I came back, I, when I I realized when I came back, I couldn't bring that with me. You know, I was, I was back to the same kind of black and white gray tones that had appeared when I was young. And that magic was missing from my life, which is, I think what, what kept me looking for, for lots of things and what had earlier on gotten me into the, all the, you know, alcohol and drug experimentation and so forth. So I, I was living kind of an expat. I went, went back to South America and I, I, I got into small time drug smuggling, just 
to live outside the system. I justified it with all this us versus them thinking. And, and, uh, but I was still a spiritual seeker. And, and eventually I heard about the founding of Naropa University in 1974. I was actually living way up in a very remote valley, high up in the Andes Mountains. And uh, some travelers came by, found my place, and, and uh, brought a copy of Rolling Stone magazine in 1974. They had a big feature story about the, the, the inaugural summer session at Naropa, then Naropa Institute, which was quite a spiritual happening. And uh, I read about that and just knew I had, had to go there. And it was already in alignment with what I was trying to pursue on my own, which was primarily the Tibetan Buddhist teachings, of which there was very only three or four books published at that time. And I was trying to practice on my own, but I wasn't getting very far. I really knew I needed, you know, support and a teacher and some, you know, kind of path. And so anyway, I went to Naropa. I got my master's degree there in, in what was then called Buddhist and Western psychology, which they now call a, a master's in contemplative psychotherapy. And, um, but I kept this secret life and I continued to support myself and keep my problems at bay with, you know, by disappearing once or twice a year and smuggling cocaine from South America. And, you know, there was clear cognitive dissonance between the Buddhist path I was getting very involved in and that life. And I just self-medicated around that dissonance and my marriage fell apart for obvious reasons. And, uh, you know, I kept those problems at bay with money. So I was just kind of caught in that spiral. I knew I had to get out of it. Um, but before I did, um, I earned my way into a, a long prison sentence. Actually, I did stop, um, but others continued on and and uh, and eventually were uh, arrested and they decided to invite me uh, to the party, so to speak. And and um, so I I ended up with a uh, quite a long prison sentence. Initially, I was you know there was quite a pivotal moment. I was. Uh, charged with uh, an offense called continuous criminal enterprise, the so-called drug kingpin statute. And I didn't feel I was guilty of it at all. I was charged with that because I refused to cooperate against others. I And that wasn't, I wasn't trying to be a stand-up guy. It was just, I was a Buddhist. And I, it didn't make sense to me to trade my time for others, like have other people go to prison for a longer time or have their families suffer so that I could go for less time or not go at all. So I had refused to cooperate or testify. And so I became the uh, the designated central uh, figure uh, along with one other person and, and everybody else testified, right? That's how you become the kingpin. But so I didn't feel I was guilty of that or was at that level of, of that kind of thing at all. So I went to trial, but I ended up being convicted on all counts. If, if it hadn't been for that one charge, I would have just pled guilty to the other offenses. And the thing was that that count carried a no parole sentence with it. So whatever you were sentenced to, that was it. You were not going to get out. Uh, unless you had a presidential pardon, which of course is uh, extremely rare. So, and, and I was uh, vulnerable to a sense of anywhere from 10 years to life. Um, so at any rate, I was convicted on all accounts. And then the night before my sentencing, they had me in a suicide watch cell in a, in a different county jail from where I'd been all that time, one that was closer to the courthouse. I wasn't suicidal, but I guess they were worried about me or something. I, I was anxious for sure. And I couldn't sleep at all. I was up all night. And I remember um, probably about an hour before dawn, uh, I was just feeling really claustrophobic and restless. And there was a small window way up high in the cell. And the cell was all concrete and steel and a built-in stainless steel toilet and sink. So I climbed up on that so I could reach up to this little window and look out at the sky. And I could see the night sky and some stars out there. 
And I was just looking out there and, and then just a wave came over me of just something, a wave of calmness and peace, really. And I stepped down from that perch and, and sat on the bunk in that cell and and continued to feel this wave of peace and calm. And, and it, it just, this resolve came over me to not give up on myself, to not give up on life, to not give up on my son who was then nine years old. And uh, I was still really worried about what would happen that next day, but, but something, I, I just made a decision. I wasn't gonna cave in. I wasn't gonna give up into despair or depression or anything like that. So the next day I was actually sentenced to 30 years without parole. And I was 35 years old, old then. I pretty much thought my life was over. And I actually remember my knees buckling when I was sentenced. My lawyer kind of held me up. I was hoping for 15 or something, even 20. And, um, and also remember, you know, just feeling absolutely devastated over what I'd done to my son. And as I was taken back into the holding tank, uh, I could feel the tears wanting to come forth, but I'd seen the the U.S. Marshals make fun of other prisoners who who you know cried about something, and I just wasn't going to give them that pleasure, so I just yeah. kind of stuffed it. And uh, when I got back to the county jail, the the one where I'd been spending most of my time, um, that night in my bunk alone after dark, I really wanted to let the tears flow, but I couldn't. I I just shoved them down too far and. And jail's no place for tears anyway. So, um, but I, I was absolutely devastated. I went to a real dark night of the soul experience for weeks um, and months, really realizing what I'd done to my son and the impact of all the selfish decisions I've been making for so long. My son was not going to grow up without a father. And so I became radically dedicated to get all the negativity out of my life and to use what I've been given in my life and the talents I had to do something good and create a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or even died in prison. Mm -hmm. So when I did get to the federal prison, which was actually a relief because it was a big place compared to this little county jail I was in and you could, you know, get a job and there were recreation yards and a weight room. And, you know, it was, it was a big place or about 1300 prisoners there and, and uh, crazy place, very intense place and full of suffering uh, because it was a maximum security federal prison hospital. And so there were people there dying of, every illness imaginable. And there were, I saw men being walked around who were blind. And uh, I started working up volunteering in the hospital. There were men who were quadriplegic and paraplegic and I mean, just tremendous suffering. It was also a psychiatric hospital. So you'd see prisoners doing the Thorazine two-step down the hall and, you know, just tremendous suffering. It was when I first got there, it felt like I was in a Fellini movie or something. But at any rate, I, I just resolved to show up and serve there as best I could. And, and, uh, so that really became a transformative journey for me. And uh, I thought I was going to be there 30 years, but it took me a little while to figure out that under the old sentencing laws prior to 1987, there was a lot of good time. If you stayed out of trouble in a sentence longer than 10 years, you got the maximum amount of good time. So I got the maximum amount of statutory good time. And then I also got what was called extra good time or work good time just by keeping a job. And um, so eventually I figured out that I would serve 18 and a half on 30 and then about three years into my time, my appeal went through the courts and they knocked off one, one of the charges, which reduced my aggregate sentence to 25. And at that, that point I knew I would do 14 and a half if I stayed out of trouble, which I managed to do. So yes. I served 14 years in and then half six months out under 
in a halfway house and under house arrest. So that was that kind of a journey. But the way that the radical responsibility model arose was that once I got to that federal prison, um, you know, I realized that, well, there were several things. I mean, one, I was just devastated over what I'd done to my son and how I'd let down my teacher, my community, and my family, and what I'd done to myself. I just completely torched my own life. And so I became radically dedicated to transform my life and to really take all the good things. I mean, I had, had been on a path of, of a lot of good things for a long time. And I had had a basically sound family despite, despite our problems with good values. And and I had a master's degree and, and I'd been trained as a Buddhist teacher for 10 years, mm-hmm. um, uh, practitioner and teacher. So, um, you know, I just was was really committed to seeing how I could show up and and be helpful and create a better legacy for my son, as I mentioned. But I also realized that if I didn't proactively um, do otherwise, that I would very likely come out of there if I survived at all, angry and bitter. And because that was the world I was in, I could just see it was a world of anger and bitterness. And any prisoner you talk to, if you ask the right question, just outpoured their own victim story and their anger and bitterness. And, and you know, when you get locked up, you're just immediately, you know, it's a process of shaming and you're just buried under a mountain of, of demonization and blaming and shaming. And so you naturally just to survive psychically, you, you you armor up. And so most prisoners are all armored up with their bitterness and anger and toughness, right? Which is actually further tragic, further, um, a further tragedy because a process of real transformation begins with recognizing really the impact that one's behaviors have had on others and experiencing that genuine remorse and regret. But when you're busy just trying to survive, it's very hard to touch into that genuine remorse and regret. So that's why the whole prison criminal justice system is really kind of counterproductive the way, not counter, not kind of, it's extremely counterproductive the way it's all set up. Fortunately, I had the resources to recognize all that. And I realized I didn't, I didn't want to live that way in prison. I didn't want to gravitate towards that mindset or the so-called convict mindset I mean, I knew that was my world, it was my community. I was very clear these these were these were the guys I was going to be with for a long time. I wasn't going to be going to separate myself, and and I was clear about keeping the boundaries with the staff. You know, I was I was a convict, but I wasn't going to take on the convict mindset, and I didn't want to live as an angry, bitter convict either. And so, so I really worked hard at doing otherwise, and I realized that the only way through that experience for me to survive, you know, was my heart and mind intact. And if I could ever get out to get out and have any kind of life, I needed to embrace really 100% radical responsibility for having got myself in there and what I was going to do to get through it and, uh, and try to get beyond it. And that, uh, and that, you know, there was, there were all kinds of people, as I mentioned, who, you know, I did, I did a lot of people's time. And when the government prosecutes you, they break all their own rules. They break laws. I mean, they play hardball, right? So, you know, I had lots of, things I could have gotten all focused on and blaming and being angry about and friends that had stabbed me in the back. And I could have focused on all that. And I decided just to absolutely not focus on any of that, to forget it all and focus on really seeing I had totally gotten myself into that situation, which wasn't hard to see. I worked hard to get there and, uh, and that it was really up to me what I was going to do with it. And it was really, that's where this philosophy of radical responsibility was born. Wow, that is uh, fascinating and inspiring. Just that, you know, it's quite an achievement to have come out the way you have. Um, 
if I may also just to just before we get started on everything, if, if you excuse me for bringing up your, your son, but I did learn uh, that your son passed uh, relatively recently. It was September, was it? Um, yeah. 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 We lost him in September, uh, yes. which was um, obviously devastating. And um, I've been working with that very proactively using all my contemplative practice resources and so forth. And um, yeah, Robert, um, Robert and I, fortunately, often people, when I tell my story, people say, well, how's your relationship with Robert now? And, and uh, it was actually helpful that you had already heard about his passing. Um, we had a very close relationship. We had our issues, obviously, you know, he grew up with his dad in prison. He got out. Uh, well, I got out in 99. He'd been, he, he lived in Peru the whole time I was inside and then moved back to the States just about a year or so before I got out. And, you know, we had our struggles off and on and, uh, but I really worked at, you know, at healing and repairing that relationship. And, and we, we were very close. He struggled. Um, fortunately he managed to stay out of trouble and never got caught up in drugs. Um, but he struggled, uh, uh, in, in, in different ways, a really talented, incredibly creative, kind of magical person really, mm-hmm. and very hard working. but he'd get his life going for a period of time and then things would kind of fall apart. And, uh, you know, and, uh, often I, you know, kind of reluctantly step in to get him going again. Cause I didn't want to be in that rescuer role and in, in a way that would be disempowering or, 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 uh, to him, but at the same time, I wasn't going to just let him, you know, end up homeless or something. So, you know, we, we went through cycles of that. He'd have totally got to be working hard four or five years. And then when you look into discover student loans, what you see might surprise you. We can help cover your college costs don't charge you fees, and give you cash rewards for good grades. Ready to apply? Visit discoverstudentloans.com. Limitations apply. At Wendy's, we make breakfast better. Like with our breakfast Baconator. Better from top to bottom bun. Savory sausage patty? Better. Crispy oven baked bacon? Better. Fresh cracked egg? Better. The breakfast Baconator might just be the greatest breakfast sandwich of all time. So you can keep settling for not better, or you can get a better breakfast from Wendy's. Tough choice. Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's Better Breakfast. Participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours. And things would fall apart again. Um, and in one of those periods, he was in Peru, and he'd been trying to create his own clothing line for quite a while. Brilliant stuff he was creating, uh, but really tough business to break into in the States. And and uh, so that kind of eventually fell apart, and he wanted to get open a restaurant because he basically all his adult life had been in the restaurant business uh, as, as a server, uh, sommelier, chef, and so forth. And and so he was up in Cusco scouting sites and somehow was in the wrong place at the wrong time late at night and ended up being beaten nearly to death. And I got contacted and found, you know, he was in a hospital in a coma and I got on a plane. I was down there the very next day and, and I sat by his bedside with his mom for um, about eight or nine days before he came out of that coma. And that was really scary. And it, he came out once he came off the medication, completely crazy. So they kept remedicating because with a frontal lobe injury, you often end up with this completely uninhibited, explosive, inappropriate behavior. And, and this went on for, I eventually got him back to the States, but this went on for six or so months or longer. And at the same time, my partner at the time, my beloved Denise was, was dying of cancer and she was on hospice. So really intense time of my life. 
I couldn't bring Robert home because he was belligerent and crazy and out of control. And eventually I managed to get him situated at an ashram um, um, in Montana that uh, of a friend of mine who's a spiritual teacher. And, and he eventually, it turned, he eventually, I think all the brain finally reabsorbed in his brain and he came out of it and was kind of himself again. It took him a while to recover emotionally, but he was basically himself again and rational. And uh, he was actually there for, uh, for Denise's um, funeral and so forth. And um, then he was okay. And, um, but about six years later, after he went, uh, he went back to school uh, and I helped him go back to school and get a culinary arts degree. Uh, and right towards the end of that time in school, he started having seizures as a result of the scar tissue from that injury in his frontal lobes. And that was around 2014, 2015. And so, you know, off and on since then, he had struggled because of the seizures and being on meds. And he had moved back down to Peru a couple of years ago to, uh, because he thought it would be less stressful down there. And it was, and I think he was doing okay, but with under the pandemic, it was harder. And we really don't know what happened. His mom found him one morning. He was already gone. We, we assume he woke up with a seizure and seizures don't usually kill you, but they can trigger a respiratory failure or a heart failure. And we can only assume that's what happened. So it was shocking and unexpected. And uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I I was very sorry to hear about it. And uh, please offer my sincere condolences. I can't imagine what that's about. I don't know what's appropriate to say, but I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I do think it, it just adds a lot more context to seeing how your approach to life is actually, you're dealing with a lot here. This is not the your typical circumstance. And if you really believe what you're saying, well, there it is. There's a lot of credibility there. So mm-hmm. I very much thank you for sharing that. Um, now let's take it to something positive though, the positive approach to dealing with the realities of life. And this is a radical responsibility I'd like to get started on. Um, a foundational premise of it is that, that of innate goodness. What does this mean and why is it so fundamental? Yeah, it's, it's really fundamental and, and it really comes from my Buddhist training and also, uh, uh, being involved with the, uh, global Shambhala community and the Shambhala teaching. My original teacher, Chogun Phumpa Rinpoche, used the term basic goodness, uh, meaning a, an unconditional, fundamental, innate goodness that all beings have, all of life has. And in, in more Buddhist language, it's called Buddha nature. And you could call it divine nature, Christian nature, God nature, what have you, in, in more theistic language or God-centered language. But it's the idea that we are innately good, that there's nothing... It, it's the opposite of the notion of original sin or any notion of the flawed nature of humanity. Um, and I think original sin is actually, I, I think it's just another description for what in Buddhist language we would just call the problem of the ego, the problem of the small self and selfishness. But it's not original. It's not, you know, it's, it's not fundamental. It's just a psychological issue that we can transform and overcome. And uh, so it changes everything because I actually believe our culture is is sadly very influenced by that kind of flawed Calvinist version of Christian theology of the flawed nature of humanity, and that we live in a, a culture that's uh, very driven by blame and shame, mm-hmm. and um, and you know it's really based on this idea that human beings, uh, absent some coercive, uh, some threat of some coercive force, will not behave well. And so, of course, we set up all kinds of fear-based institutions and have fear-based cultural principles and, and you know, to try to coerce human beings into good behavior. And, and it's really, you know, if you, if as a society, if we don't feel good about ourselves, right, and uh, then what kind of world do we create, right? 
So it's a really a radical different context. And it's been, you know, actually the, the dominant historical worldview is that of innate goodness. There's basically three views going out through all, through all time in all human cultures. There is the view of innate goodness, which is, has really been the dominant view historically. There's what's called the blank slate view, which, which believes we're just kind of, we're just, we're just like a blank slate and whatever we're exposed to, that's what we'll become. And then there's the view of the flawed nature that we have this sort of evil seed in us or this flawed nature. And uh, it really changes everything depending on, you know, which view you have. And, and I personally believe that the view of any goodness is one that you can actually affirm experientially through your own practice and experience, but also even logically, when you think about um, what do most human beings do every day, day in and day out, right? All the world over. They, we get up, we get out of bed, which takes courage <laughs> when you really think about it to deal with our lives. And, you know, and we, we do our best to take care of ourselves, take care of our children. We queue up at the well, we queue up at the store, we drive on the right side of the road. We're inherently collaborative and cooperative. And as long as fear doesn't set in, we're, we're really very partnering and well-behaved. Now, of course, if fear sets in that our, that we're not going to be able to meet our needs, then you can see all kinds of other behaviors, and, and including extremely um uh, violent behaviors and so forth, especially, but all, usually when, it, when they're extreme behaviors, that's not just a person experience that their needs are threatened, but it's also that they've very damaged childhood psychology and so forth. But at any rate, you know, absent those things, human beings are, are naturally loving and caring and, and so forth. And, but basic goodness isn't really, the idea of basic goodness isn't necessarily good as opposed to bad. It's that it's just a fundamental ground of our being is pure and without flaw and completely workable. I mean, when you think about life, you know, like, is life a mistake somehow? Like, is, is life, you know, is there something fundamentally bad about life? I mean, what is life? I mean, we, none of us even know how we got here, or what it's all about, why there's round planets and a moon and stars, and, you know, why we have two arms and two legs instead of five. And, you know, it's this incredible mystery, and we have all kinds of ideas about it, and all the different philosophies and religious traditions have, have ideas about it. And some of those may be grounded in genuine revelation, and or they may be purely specul speculative, who knows? But, but you know, it's not a mistake, it's life, it is what it is. And so to think that somehow human beings who are one of the higher life forms or the highest life form in this planet that we know of, most intelligent anyway, are somehow fundamentally flawed. I mean, it doesn't even make sense when you think about it, right? Exactly. So, you know, it's really talking about that life is just fundamentally good. And, and, but then it can go either way because when we, when we trust in our own innate goodness and in, in the innate goodness of others and of life, we behave really well. We're naturally compassionate and caring and kind. And when we don't trust in our own innate goodness and we don't trust in the goodness of others, then you see all the fear-based behaviors, right? And all the things that plague humanity, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why it's really important. But also in terms of the radical responsibility model, it's really important to give us the resilience to embrace this level of ownership. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important distinctions in the radical responsibility model is between ownership and blame. Because some people when, well, let me first state how I usually define radical responsibility. I usually define it as voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life internal circumstances within ourselves and circumstances around us in the world, including the ones that we can actually see. Maybe we had something to do with creating or, or allowing or, or by whatever, but as well, the ones we, we, we can't see we had anything to do with at all. They just fell on our head and maybe they're incredibly unjust even, and everybody would agree. So 
still embracing 100% responsibility ownership for those. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean some kind of self-blame? No, this is the really key distinction. It has nothing to do with blame at all. It's a trans-blame model. It's not about blaming ourselves, clearly not about blaming others, and not about blaming victims, right? It's because the only place we have any real power and real influence is with ourselves. So if I start blaming my problems on external circumstances, other people, even if I think my feelings are caused by other people, I'm giving my power away, which we all do continually, right? Because we can't control other people. We try, but we can't. And we know we can't because we know what we're ultimately uncontrollable. So we can't control other people. We can't control life. We can't control the circumstances. We can sometimes influence things, but the main thing that we can influence is ourselves. And that's hard enough because we all have our childhood conditioning that we receive for better or worse. And, you know, we start off once we're an adult, we, we've got all this programming in us already. So it's hard enough to work with that, but at least we have a shot. That's where our real personal power lies. So that's why, that's why we focus on living at choice. What are my choices and what are my choices gonna, gonna lead to, right? So that's what we mean by, and that requires, the, the, the connection between that and the importance of, of developing an experiential faith or confidence in our own innate goodness to begin with is to have the resilience to do that. Because otherwise, even our attempt to do that could trigger tendencies to self-shame or self-blame. And, and we really need to work to free ourselves of those tendencies so we can just own things. Like this has nothing to do with me being good or bad. I can recognize when I make mistakes, boy, that was a dumb thing to do, or I could have done this, or that wasn't so skillful. I actually knew better, or I actually could have seen that coming and I went anyway, or maybe I could have seen it coming and it was just, you know, dumb luck or whatever. But whatever, you know, I can see what I wanna see. And, and it's really all about learning because it's not about ever about blaming myself. Even if I can see I completely caused something that happened to me, you know, I'm really upset about something. And if I really dig in and look at it, I realize I completely caused it. Even then, that's not for the purpose of blaming myself. It's just see, oh, I'll do something different next time, right? I can see this strategy or these actions led to that outcome. I don't like that outcome. I'm going to do something different next time. Or even if I could look back and, you know, three, three, four moves and see if I'd gone left instead of right, I would have gotten a different outcome. Well, next time I'll know to go left instead of right, right? So it's all for the purpose of, of learning. It has absolutely nothing to do with blame, but it does require a certain resilience. You know, I, I know people that have other models kind of similar, but they'll often say, well, that's, that's too tough, you know, because, you know, certainly we want to own as much as we can, but we need to parse out, you know, okay, I'll, I'll take 40%, but really it is 60% the other person, you know, because taking the whole thing, that's just going to trigger, you know, shaming. And I say, well, yes, if you don't do the inner work to, to understand the difference, and if you don't do your healing work, it could, but the importance of doing that, because even if I, you know, agree, okay, something happened, let's say you and I had a conflict. We're involved in some kind of business deal that fell apart. We're both really hot under the collar. We're ready to go to fisticuffs or sue each other. But we have a friend that says, no, don't do that. You're going to end up in jail or you're going to spend all your money on lawyers. I know this mediator. Go to the mediator. So we reluctantly do that. You know, I'm pretty confident because I know I'm right. You're a little nervous, obviously. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but we go to the mediator and, and the mediator interviews us separately and then brings us together. And, Boy, I don't know what to say here. You're, you guys are both great salespeople, great storytellers. It's a he said, he said thing. But I'll tell you what, we have the videotape, right? And so I'm going to go show this videotape to a focus group that I put together of 12 really smart people that don't know either one of you, couldn't give a hoot about either one of you. And we'll see what they say. So. 
mediator does that, comes back, pulls us together and looks at me and says, Fleet, well, I have to say they did agree that Matt bears more of the responsibility here. And I said, boy, I'm glad you found such a brilliant group of people. And they realized it's all Matt's fault. And I feel vindicated. I feel good about it. And the mediator says, well, Fleet, no, they, they, they said it's, you know, it's about 70, 30, 60, 40, you know, that Matt bears part, but you do bear some of the responsibility. Well, I don't really believe it, but as long as they realize it was all his fault and I feel vindicated. The mediator keeps pushing me, Fleet, okay. Maybe I had some small part in it. I don't think it rose to as much as 30 or 40%, but maybe I had some small part. But as long as we all agree, it's mostly Matt's fault and I feel good and vindicated. I won, I'm right, right? That's very common, right? Does that make sense? If I'm convinced that I'm, I'm by, by definition, I'm upset, I'm unhappy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm convinced that it's 60, 70% your fault, how much of my power am I giving away? I should think, well, I, anywhere from 60 to 70 to all of it. Exactly. It, it, because can I control you? Not, yeah. Well, zero, you can control zero of me. Yeah. Exactly. So I can't control you. So if I'm really attributing causation of my internal state to you and believe that, then I just put you in, turn of my, in charge of my internal state because it doesn't get to change until you change. Mm-hmm. I mean, we even do that around being happy, right? I mean, you usually don't worry about it if you're happy, but if I think I'm really happy because of what somebody else is doing, what happens when they stop doing it? Now I'm unhappy, right? We continually give our power away to other people and situations and circumstances mm-hmm. rather than realizing that our internal states are completely within our own self-agency. Our emotions actually arise out of the perception of our needs being met or not. Our emotions are not caused by other people or circumstances. They arise out of our perception of our needs being met or not. And that's completely within our own self-agency. Well, that's something I'll tell you, you've covered all kinds and knocked down all kinds of my questions here with that. I uh, really covered a lot of what it's about. Uh, if I can get into a couple specifics, I do have a, a friend of mine who's very interested in this interview and has even contributed several questions, just is trying to develop this kind of mindset. Uh, he has a no honking project. I wonder if this is apl- applicable here. Um, in Korea, let me give you a, some context. The driving, mm-hmm. driving habits and general road etiquette are different than Western standards to say the least. So he's recognized some anger issues, uh, not only on the road but in other aspects of his life and he thought to create a conscientious policy which he announced to me for accountability he said basically that for the month of february i'm not honking at anybody uh, you know what even if they cut him off totally and it's all their fault i'm just not doing it um you know it's barring safety reasons but not in anger and then he, right. he said if he did he would at least try to catch himself as quickly as possible and that would be the exercise so right. Um, before he had actually, before we looked into your work, he was already talking in terms of giving away power to other people. But, you know, he says he's been enjoying a good mood, listen to a podcast or something. And then it was taken away from him by someone because this guy cut him off. And he's looking at the idea when there's some kind of action, we have the ability to choose our reaction. We have to stretch that time between to decide how to react. So my, or our question for you is how do we develop that mindset shift? How, is there, is his approach with the no honking, for instance, a good way to practice? Absolutely. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little strategy could come up with it. Every time yeah. he, 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 every time he honks, he's got to send you a hundred bucks. Oh, I love <laughs> it. <laughs> so is that the kind of thing that people might do? Say I'm gonna... people, people actually do things like that. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes even bigger, like, you know, I, some people in this world of personal development and training, they'll say, you know, 
make a commitment and you know if you break the commitment you got to send a thousand dollars to some organization that's like the antithesis of what you would think you know like a neo-nazi organization or something or somebody you actually hate whatever yes right yeah, what I mean, is that actually gonna that kind of practice though gonna actually make him become more uh less reactive in the future do you think like well, I mean, we you know, I mean, what I was saying that kind of jokingly can really help with the commitment, but, but you know, what will the fact he's already on the right track of owning it. Right. Yeah. And so how does he change the habit now? It's really about changing the habit. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, there are, there are a number of different things he can do there. One is to first take ownership for his own physiology. Okay. And I'll share a little practice with you that he can do with that take ownership for his own physiology so that he's in the best possible state to give himself the best chance of not falling into that reactive reactive pattern. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, another is cognitively, he's, he's kind of already done that. He already, he's already realized why he doesn't want to do that and why it's not helpful and why the culture of honking, I guess, which is dominant there is, is not a helpful thing. Right. So he, he already understands this would be a good thing for him to overcome and then maybe to help others overcome. Right. So, so he's kind of worked, worked with, worked with it cognitively. Now, in terms of habits, it's often helpful to understand that there, there's something we call the habit loop, right? So there's a trigger, a stimuli, mm -hmm. and then there's a behavior that we usually do, which is habitual and there's a payoff, right? So somebody cuts him off. He honks, he feels good. Arr, I honked at him, right? Right. That's the payoff, right? So there's always going to be that stimulus. Somebody's going to cut you off or somebody's going to, you know, drive in a not so helpful way. And so there's the trigger, the stimulus. You need to replace the behavior with something else that has uh, as good a reward or a better reward, right? As good a okay. reward or a better reward. So he has to think about what that is. Now in that, uh, it doesn't immediately come to mind. Well, it does because actually what I'm going to suggest now would be very helpful, but it would also be helpful if he use this in a prophylactic way to be prepared. So it's something called straw breathing, which I teach a lot. Mm -hmm. And I teach it to prisoners. I teach it to police and correctional officers, all corporate people, all kinds of people. And I use it myself all the time. And in fact, before the pandemic, I was a road warrior traveling every week, uh, traveling all the world teaching and so forth. A lot of white knuckle drives to the airport. And I do straw breathing all the time to keep myself well-regulated and to avoid my own tendencies to road rage which I had in the past, but I've overcome a long time ago. And I overcome them basically through meditation, mindfulness, and self-regulation. So straw breathing is very simple. You breathe in through the nose and then out through pursed lips as if through a straw. In through the nose. Out through pursed lips. You can actually do it with a straw, yeah. but you don't need to. You can just do it through pursed lips. And so breathe in through the nose with the mouth closed, out through pursed lips. And then you want the out breath to be twice as long as the in breath. So we count. So if you want to just try this for a moment. So we'll begin on an in breath. In, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. In, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So you get the idea. Yes. If you just do that for 30 seconds a minute, you're going to feel your whole physiology calm down. Mm -hmm. 
The reason is our nervous system has these two branches, the autonomic nervous system. One upregulates, that's the stress response. The other downregulates, that's the re- relaxation, rest, and recovery response. Most of us live in a too upregulated state all the time. That's the stress of modern living, right? We block access to the rest and recovery zone. So we have to learn techniques like this to gain access to it. So when I drive, I'm always doing straw breathing. Always. It's just a habit now. I do it when I'm driving and it keeps me well-regulated. I'm very unlikely to react. because At Dunkin', we're getting ready for sunnier days with our Sunrise Batch Iced Coffee. A bright and balanced iced coffee with notes of cocoa, tangy sweetness, and toasted nuts. Made to brighten every day a little more. Soak in the sunshine a little more. And fill every moment with a little more, more. Because we aren't just chasing sunsets anymore. We're counting sunrises too. Do more with Dunkin' Sunrise Batch Iced Coffee. Brewed for brighter days. Enjoy a medium for $2. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. This is Sarah's O'Reilly Auto Parts story. Driving cross country with two young children is ambitious, to say the least. Then our check engine light came on. We pulled into O'Reilly Auto Parts and they tested it. Turned out it was a faulty sensor. They referred us to a great mechanic just down the street, and we were back on the road in no time. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. As I'm in what's called my resilience zone, or what Dan Siegel calls the window of tolerance, and I'm much better able to respond to challenges of life without going into reactivity, right? So if he would do straw breathing while he was driving, he would have a really good chance of not falling because he has the intention not to honk. He would have a really good chance of falling into that, of not falling into that reactivity. Now, if he forgets to do it and something happens, he finds himself, uh, you know, with this, with the trigger, right? Somebody cuts him off or something like that. He can immediately remember to straw breathe, right? And he'll replace the honking with the straw breathing and the payoff he'll get is he'll feel calm and relaxed, right? Which is a better payoff than you get from the honking, right? Mm -hmm. And so by replacing the behavior and that also creates a reward connected to the same stimulus, eventually that creates a different neural pathway in the brain, which, and that becomes robust and the other one becomes diminished and you have a new habit, a more positive habit. So the straw breathing could both be used as a new behavior, but it could also be used prophylactically so that he wouldn't respond in the first place if he uses it consistently while he's driving. And people who have embraced straw breathing just find it life-saving. Mm-hmm. I'll show you one other thing really quickly. Yeah. Put your hand on your belly, and we're going to breathe with little sips through the nose, really fast, like hyperventilating, like this. Fast as you can. Just do that for about 10 seconds. Oh, that's good enough. Very relaxing, right? No, it's not relaxing at all. <laughs> I was dying for breath. Yeah. So that does exactly the opposite. It triggers the sympathetic branch response, the stress response. It upregulates your nervous system. So that's like the accelerator. Straw breathing and other types of breath regulation that emphasize out breath is like the brake. So now you have the accelerator and a brake for your own nervous system, which means you can be in charge of your own physiology you can self-regulate your emotions and you can self-regulate your behaviors, which puts you in the driver's seat of your own life or what I what I call a self-leadership position in life. These simple tools, if you really embrace them, now you might think, when would I ever want the accelerator? Well, I do that every morning. I do this a whole yoga routine before I even get out of bed, stretching and various things. And the last one I do is I do a half bridge pose and I do the abdominal fast breathing. It's called fire breathing. Completely wakes up my nervous system. And then 
I, I sit on the side of the bed and then I do some slow breathing and the combination puts me in a very relaxed, alert state to begin my day. So breath regulation is the, is the key to regulating our own nervous system. Okay. This is the parasympathetic versus the sympathetic nervous system. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want had on that. Um, I guess just in regular life, how do we identify which state we are in? Um, and, and then, are there particular situations in which it's better to be in one state than another? And can we switch from one or the other? Well, it's not so much one or the other, but we're in a, okay. they're both going on all the time, right? Okay. There's a balance, right? So there's sometimes when we need to have more sympathetic, we need to be really alert or a state of readiness or even responding to a crisis. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when we're trying to go sleep at night, it's going to be much better to be completely the other way. Right. So we're just relaxed and can drift off to sleep and have a good night's sleep. Right. Or the, because if we if we manage to go to sleep because we're tired, but we're still in that stressed out state, we're not going to sleep well. We're going to have anxiety dreams. We're going to wake up tired. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a proper balance for any activity of these two branches of the autonomic nervous system, whether we're in a state of readiness at work or just doing desk work or relaxing at home with our family or being out for social activities or recreational activities out in nature or, you know, trying to chop wood or or go to sleep at night. There's a proper balance of those two for any human activity, and we can learn to be in charge of that. And it's really huge because if I don't embrace ownership for my own physiology and do these practices so that I can learn to self-regulate, guess who's regulating my nervous system? The subconscious or? Everybody but me. I see. Okay. The world around me. I believe we live it. in the interface between our childhood conditioning, which we had nothing to say about, and, you know, we've got some good stuff in there or we wouldn't be functioning as adults, but we all have some gnarly stuff in there. There's stuff that grandma, Susan, and uncle Joe couldn't work out and they pass on to us and say, good luck. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's our job to work through that stuff and try to pass on, you know, better conditioning to our offspring and to people we influence, but we all have our childhood conditioning and we live in the interface between that and the world around us. Usually for most people in a very mechanic, me- fairly mechanical, unconscious way. And we, we may think we're making autonomous adult decisions all day long, but we're really responding very mechanically. Stimulus A1 happens, we respond with B2 every time, right? And so most of us lead pretty mechanical lives. And, and you know, if our childhood conditioning is relatively benevolent and the world around us is relatively benevolent, that may be okay. It's not being awake and really alive from my perspective, but... But a lot of us, our childhood conditioning is not that benevolent and the world one is not that benevolent. So being in that space, on, you know, it can be a really rough place to live, but we can actually take ownership for it. You know, and you were kind of mentioning before this, the, there's the stimulus, right? And then there's how we respond, right? So Viktor Frankl is very famous for pointing out it's that space between the stimulus and the response or the stimulus and the unconscious reaction. Therein lies the whole of our human freedom. Therein lies the whole human journey. That's where we reclaim our dignity as conscious human beings by not simply responding mechanically to every stimulus, but by being able to have enough mindfulness and presence of mind to recognize or feel the stimulus and then choose how to respond to it mm-hmm. rather than yes. unconsciously mechanically reacting to it. That's what I'm looking for. I want to know how can we develop this more and more. Is this and and incidentally, he said that that practice has spilled into other areas of his life where he's noticing he's he's less reactive and less calm where he used to get a little more angry. So yeah. maybe he is he is changing something up there. Um, well, it's really all about mind training, and yes. uh, you know, there's lots of forms of mind training, but mindfulness has become really well known in the world today, and most of the secular mainstream mindfulness 
practices come out of the Buddhist meditation traditions, but you can find examples of mindfulness in all the world's religious traditions, as well as the shamanic and indigenous and other philosophical traditions. But basic mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath training, right? It's pretty simple. You have an object of mindfulness, which in this case is the breath and the body. You choose to put your attention there. And of course, what happens is your mind wanders because our minds are undisciplined and they wander all over the place, right? Well, your mind wanders, you notice that, you bring it back. It wanders again, you bring it back again. Wanders again. Every time you come back, it's like you're doing another rep and you're building that muscle of mindfulness. You're training the mind to recognize that it's distracted, to wake itself up and to come back to presence, to attentiveness. And the more you do it, you know, the more. Now, we all have mindfulness. We couldn't function without it. We'd be walking in the walls, right? If you were tested for mindfulness, you'd get a score. You couldn't get zero, right? But we can have more mindfulness and that improves every every, the quality of our life and every domain of life, right? I mean, be more awake, more present, more relational, more available, you know, it's just going to improve every aspect of life and our performance in every aspect of life. So we know that mind training, we've known this for thousands of years from the world's contemplative traditions, but now we know it from modern neuroscience that with regular practice, not only can you be more mindful when you're doing the practice, but you can increase your baseline or default mindfulness and it will stay there with practice. And we don't know what the limits to that are. So mind training helps us become more resilient, have better cognitive control, better emotional balance, and it actually changes our brain. Right? We know today that the brain can grow and thrive and change throughout the lifespan based on what's called neuroplasticity. We Even two or three decades ago, we thought the brain you have, by the time you're an adult, the brain you got is the brain you got. You're stuck with it, and if anything, it's going to diminish in its capacity over the lifespan. We now know that's not true at all. The brain can thrive and grow and become more complex and more efficient all the way into being over 100 years old if we work with it, right? So there's really no limitations. And mindfulness uh, has been proven scientifically to actually make the brain more plastic, more changeable, and to nudge it in the right direction so that we have a more default positive outlook, more emotional balance, more cognitive control, more resilience, and so forth. It improves our immune system response. I mean, it's just amazing, all, all the benefits of it. So. So some kind of mind training is essential. And also this is what gives us the ability for things to slow down or, you know, we have more awareness that things aren't necessarily slowing down, but we have more awareness. So they appear to be slowing down mm -hmm. and we recognize that decision point. We recognize that gap where before we would have just gone from stimulus to reaction. Now we recognize, oh, and I have a choice. I know where I usually go with this. I don't want to go there anymore. I'm going to make a different choice this time. And therein lies the whole of human freedom. Wow. It's very optimistic and encouraging to hear all this. And I've just really started to get into this uh, myself. So I do have a few kind of rookie basic questions about it, if we can. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I just want to mention on a personal note, it's funny how things come at once. Um, like I said, I've only started practicing in the several weeks uh, with that same friend I mentioned. We're kind of committed together. We kind of said, well, let's do 15 minutes a day at first and we report every day when we finish it just to say that we've done it. Great. Um, yeah. And yeah. And he referred me to some uh, Tara Brock guided meditations, which I used for the first week and I found them very helpful um, there. Yeah. Tara's then, a friend of mine. She's an excellent teacher. And and that was it because I just had never heard of her. And then I had that. And then I got a, you know, a, an email from an agent about setting this up. And then I, upon researching you, I saw that she was uh, what I assume to be a friend and a very good endorser, endorser of your work. And I thought, imagine all this and this whole world exists that I'm just trying to enter into now. Of course, you guys are well known in that circle, but um, well, here I am entering it. Um, 
I guess uh, another podcast and media you've had discussions with and uh, offer something to the even most experienced meditators. But as I said, I'm going to come at you as a big time novice here. And mm-hmm. I know that you have experience in that because you actually work with uh, prisoners, correctional officers and police, many of whom I imagine you guide from even less than scratch. Uh, and, uh, and maybe that's a place to start here. Um, what are some of the ways you sell meditation, as it were, to people who are skeptical or think it's too hard or, or maybe even better, what are some of the forms of resistance you've had to overcome in some of these beginners or not yet beginners? Yeah. Well, I try not to think of selling meditation, but at the same time, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean you mean, I don't mean you don't mean I, the marketplace. I you mean convince people, enroll people. But even That's then, right. I, it's more like I offer the practice, but, but still, I do want to offer it in a way that people are at least going to give it a shot, right? So, receptive to it, yeah. uh, And, you know, it's actually really been helpful, uh, what the re- all the research that the field of neuroscience has done over the last several decades on mindfulness, because now it's really easy to point to the science. And that's especially with like police, correctional officers, that is extremely helpful. Otherwise, you know, even 10 years ago, they were like, mindfulness, what's that? You know, some hippie stuff, you know, some weird stuff, right? But now it's become much more mainstream and you can point to the fact that it has all these incredible health benefits. And you can also explain that mind training is really no different than physical training, right? And physical training we're we're trying to develop greater strength or flexibility and we work out, do different exercises. With our mind, we're exercising the brain and the mind, and we're doing exercises to, to strengthen the mind and develop greater focus and greater concentration. You know, all elite athletes use some kind of mind training today. All the elite military services use some kind of mind training. I mean, it's just a no-brainer, right? It's just a no-brainer. So it's a lot easier to introduce it to people today that it's just it's a, it's 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 a, even on the simplest level, it's just basically healthy for us. It's like brushing your teeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's completely what I meant by sell. I just meant people would be more. It was what is this? Is I, I feel I feel a little yeah. strange doing this. What do I have to sit in this pose? Like it's yeah. I didn't mean anything yeah. uh, other than that. No, no, I get uh, that. And, yeah, and you know, it, it, for a lot of people, it's difficult to get them to do formal practice where you actually sit down for ten minutes a day. You know, so they just oh, I'm too busy at this. You know, especially you know, it's difficult people are parents they have full time jobs, so you can try to help them you know, integrate mindfulness into various activities, like when they're out walking the dog, instead of just spacing out or listening to the chatterbox of their brain, they could actually practice mindful walking. Now, the thing is, if you don't have a formal practice where you actually sit down and do sitting mindfulness for a period every day or most days, it's hard to remember to do those other kinds of mindfulness activities, but not impossible. So, you know, we use lots of different strategies to help people bring some mindfulness into their life or more mindfulness, because we all have mindfulness. It's just about building more of it. Okay. Would, would you mind sharing a couple of those uh, strategies with us? And, and is there something like a minimum of, minimum of effective dose or something as well, if well, I'm going to sit? There's been a lot of research on that, actually. But it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, when you think about it, if you practice mindfulness where I'm going to actually be present, right? And, you know, there's more than that. Along with being present, you have the object of mindfulness. In this case, there are, there are different practices with different objects of mindfulness. But the most common is the body and the breath focusing our attention on actually feeling the body and feeling ourselves breathing, the direct sensory experience of being alive in the body and breathing. And when the mind wanders, we bring it back. When the mind wanders, we bring it back. But along with that, we're cultivating these attitudinal qualities of openness, curiosity, non-judgment, self-acceptance. So that's a very important part of it as well, right? Yeah. So you would think, you know, 
23 hours and 50 minutes. I'm just letting my mind run and running around doing all this stuff and being my usual crazy neurotic self while I'm sleeping for part of it, but then I'm dreaming all this crazy stuff. And then for 10 minutes, I do mindfulness. How could that possibly make a difference? It actually makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Now, why is that? Yes, why? <laughs> it can, it, it's kind of tied to the basic goodness notion. Okay. But and and basically not so much as a philosophical but uh, idea, but almost as a a neurobiolo neurobiological reality that our our default way of being is actually set up for mindfulness and awareness. It's all the fear based conditioning and all the 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 chinks and stuff in our conditioning, all our childhood experiences and all the kinks and the wiring and the and the broken circuits and the cross circuits and all this stuff that keeps us, you know, mm -hmm. our mind overactive and difficult to focus and reactive and and you know, fear and all that stuff. So, but underlying all that, it's it's like, you know, the ocean. So if you have an ocean or a big lake, you have a storm. The waves are choppy or huge waves and can be terrifying up on top of the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. But you drop down about 10 feet, it's completely calm. Yes. Right? Well, our body, mind, and neurobiology are like that. And when we can drop into that, we're, at, we're dropping into something that's actually there all the time. And the extent that we start to make a little bit of a relationship with that. Mm -hmm. right? It's like we dropped an anchor down into that calm space. And if we practice that regularly, even though we, we, you know, we may be running around in our stressed out life, just the fact that we do that regularly and tap into it regularly, it, it's, we're not, it's not quite the same as it used to be when we didn't have a, a connection with that. It really changes everything. And, and the strength of that, the, the power of that is actually more powerful than the energy of fear that, that drives all of our kind of stressed out ways of living. Now, the more you do it, the better, obviously. Yep. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, I, I, I've done many three month retreats and month long retreats and week long retreats where we're practicing 12 hours a day. I've done a lot of intensive practice in my life. And on some level, they've done a lot of research. It does have to do with hours on the cushion, so to speak, on the meditation cushion. They've done research with people, you know, who never meditated versus people that did an eight week program, which I'll mention in a moment, versus people who put in a thousand hours, 5,000 hours, 10,000 hours, even 20,000 hours. If you do the math, that's a lot of practice <laughs> over many right. years, yeah. but they have these people that have done a lot of practice. They have very different brains than the rest of us under a brain scan, very, very different brains, much more complex, much more efficient, much more for their brain lights up like, you know, like a Beethoven symphony or something mm -hmm. under a brain scan, you know, very different. So, but even a little bit works and interesting, I'll give you this example. One of the best known models of mainstream secular mindfulness is the, the MBSR method that Kabat-Zinn, John Kabat-Zinn developed, mindfulness-based stress reduction, originally as a, as, as a way to help people deal with chronic pain. And so the, the classic MBSR program is an eight-week program, and you go to class once a week for two hours, mm -hmm. and you commit to practicing 30 to 45 minutes a day. And once during that eight weeks, you have a day-long program. So it's not like you go off to a cave in the Himalayas. People do this while they have full-time jobs and kids. You know, it's like a, it's a course you do for eight weeks, right? Correct. Yep. And uh, so you commit to practicing 30, 45 minutes a day. You're also supposed to probably do some physical like yoga or something three times a week. You have a class once a week. And then during the eight weeks, you have one day where you have a day of mindfulness, right? That's the program. 
Well, they've done a lot of research on that program where they start with people who've never meditated and they do a brain scan and MRI before the program. Mm -hmm. Then they do the eight week program and they do another MRI. And just in those eight weeks, they can see measurable difference in the neuronal thickness of neural pathways that support better cognitive control, better emotional control, um, improved immune system response and many other things. They actually see physical difference in the brain in just eight weeks. So, a little practice can go a long way, and the more practice, the better. That sounds excellent. I wouldn't wonder if I can get some specifics out of you as to how we go about our practices. I'm into it now, and I'm wondering about a lot of things, if I can get a few out of you. Um, the, uh, I guess one of them is, uh, let's see. Yeah, I, I, how does one know that they've had a successful, successful session? I know I probably get this question a lot. Is there such a thing as a successful session? Not really. Uh, no, okay. Not really. Uh, I heard you know, on- it's going to be different every time you sit down and sometimes you may settle in fairly easy. Sometimes your mind just feel like it's crazy, but the thing is you okay. just hang in there. Okay. You just hang in there and you keep coming back and it's always going to be different. And it's not about judging a session. That was a good session. I mean, sometimes sure. We'll have a session where it feels easier to meditate and you go, Oh, that was a good session. I'm finally getting it. Yeah. And other times you'll have a session where your mind just seemed like wild and you go, Oh, that was, but really it's all practice. And actually, yeah. The, the, if you hung in there with the time when your mind was really active and you were really struggling, but you hung in there with it, that actually may create more progress than the really easy calm session you had. So it's just all practice. You know, it's not about measuring it and good or bad. It's practice. It's just practice. Just practice. Is there a way though I might? Now there It's important to have effective practice. So okay. it is important to practice with good technique and to get good instruction. And there's a lot of that available today. I mean, there's, it's not all the same. There's good and better, you know, but but certainly Tower Brock's a good source. Uh, there are many good sources. And there's so much of it available online. There's good apps. And there's a lot of good sources today. Um, and, and you, you know, there's stuff that's really clear, classic mindfulness to talk. Now, there's a lot of kind of a little more on the woo-woo, new agey side stuff out there that may be wonderful, and, you know, but I would I would steer people towards more classic, you know, solid mindfulness uh practice training and certainly Tara Brock is one source for that along with many others. Okay. I would like, to, I guess for me, I think of my goal when I go there, what is effective, what am I looking for is I'm trying to be kind of quiet and present. I'm trying to come back. As you say, um, you say it's good to be anchored in nowness uh, as, as part of um, uh, something of neurosomatic mindfulness. Uh, why is it important to be anchored in nowness presence? I guess is a, well, that's where we live. That's all we have. You know, the rest of it's just being distracted and lost in our head. I mean, nowness is life. It's we're here, we're awake, we're aware of our life. You know, we sleep through a third of our life, more or less, right? Mm-hmm. And science says we're distracted at least half of the rest of the time, which means we... At Dunkin', we're getting ready for sunnier days with our Sunrise Batch Iced Coffee. A bright and balanced iced coffee with notes of cocoa, tangy sweetness, and toasted nuts. Made to brighten every day a little more. Soak in the sunshine a little more and fill every moment with a little more, more. Because we aren't just chasing sunsets anymore. We're counting sunrises too. Do more with Dunkin' Sunrise Batch Iced Coffee. Brewed for brighter days. Enjoy a medium for $2. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. We really only live about a third of our life. And uh, to me, I'm not satisfied with that, right? So nowness is being present. And... In neurosomatic mindfulness, the model of mindfulness that I teach that I has evolved over, you know, really 40 years plus, uh, and especially in the last three decades of really 
I've really been emphasizing a very deeply embodied approach to the practice because the more we engage the body and feel the body all the way down to the bones, because the entire body is sensory. Externally on the surface of the surface of the skin, it's one big sensory organ, but internally we have something called interoception, which is short for internal perception or interoceptive awareness because the entire body is sensory, even the bones, even the hard outer white layer of the bones, the periosteum, even the marrow of the bones, all contains neuronal cells connected to the central nervous system. So the more deeply we feel the body, that really anchors us. It's, it's like one of those, you know, those blow up dowels where you push it over, it comes back, you know, the big clown is because oh, yeah. there's lead. There's, there's some pieces of lead down there in the base. So developing a deeply felt physical presence of the body is like putting more lead in our butt, right? So, you know, it's harder for the mind to wander, easier for it to come back. And there's all kinds of other things because the deeper we go into the body, we're getting into the whole body-mind interface. We're also going to be much more in touch with our emotional body. We're going to we're going to develop resilience, heal trauma, uh, develop greater emotional intelligence, and we're going to we're going to start to even be able to kind of feel into subtle energies and and uh, you know so the more deeply we go with the body, the more it serves to anchor us in the moment. It makes it easier to practice. And what's happening neurobiologically there is there's two neural pathways in the brain that are that are very important in this regard. One's called the default mode network, and that's very active when we don't direct our attention. And that's the noisy part of the brain. It loves to time travel. It's going into the past, worrying about the past. It's going into the future and either fantasizing about the future, or worrying about the future. It's got a running commentary going on about the present, all of our opinions and judgments. We're thinking constantly about ourselves, about others, what others think about us. It's that noisy chatterbox in the brain. That's the default mode network. And when we don't direct our attention, that becomes active. And it's, it's really the source of all of our stress. And uh, it might be okay to just kind of let that run sometimes, but it's not good to live there, right? Because it's really, because more than 50% of the time, we're going to go to the negative, to anxiety and worry because of something called the negativity bias. Biologically, we're set up to pay more attention to risk and danger and negativity. So that's what our long-term memory is full of. And that's what our implicit memory spins things towards. So if we just let the mind run its course, it's going to go to the negative. So when we do focus or concentrate, and in this case, really focusing on feeling the body, feeling the breath, that activates something called the task positive network. And these two networks are mutually inhibitory. So the extent to which we engage the task positive network, the default mode network, the noisy part of the brain starts to go offline and the brain starts to quiet down. So the more we engage the body and really synchronize body and mind, in other words, the, the mind and the body in the same place doing the same thing with awareness, right? So the more we engage the body, we naturally are engaging the task positive network, which is the attention stabilizing network in the brain, stabilizes our attention and begins to give us access to all the profound states of awareness that are possible, right? So I, I think it's because without this, and it act, even when I first learned to meditate, you know, like a lot of early meditators, it was all up in my head, you know, the thoughts are coming, I get pulled into my thoughts and I, oh, I come back and I'm thinking and back and it was like all happening up here. And that's a really difficult way to practice. By bringing the body into it, we're grounded, right? And, and it's much more effective in the long run. I want to ask you about that specifically. I do have the experience, obviously, what you just described. Um, I've heard you talk about you get into the right po posture, for instance, and then you know, maybe it's some breathing to get going. But what is supposed to be, what, how do we get grounded that way? Are we trying to imagine our muscles or our bones? Are we actually flexing and feeling them and letting them go? Just, just, start with what, just, 
just start with what you can actually feel. You know, often when I lead a meditation, I'll start, well, often we'll, we'll feel the sensations at the contact points between our body and the chair of the cushion, those pressure points, our feet in the ground. We'll probably feel the weight of our clothing, contact between our clothing and our skin. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe any movement of air in the room or air temperature, how that impacts exposed skin surface areas. And the passage of air across the nostrils or parted lips with each in-breath and out-breath. So those sensations are going to be there all the time. We'll notice those. So we can focus on that and then just expand that to everything we can feel all across the surface of the skin. And then we can begin to open to exploring the internal landscape of the body. So just kind of feeling the overall weight and mass of the muscles and bones, the force of gravity holding us down. As we slow down, maybe we'll feel our heartbeat or our pulse or just feeling the overall flow of nervous energy in the body, that kind of energetic aliveness in the body, or the presence of any discomfort, aches or pains or stiffness, just whatever we can notice and feel. So we just keep bringing our attention back to whatever we can actually notice and feel and, and opening to a willingness to feel it and just be with it. And, uh, and that's the practice. That's excellent. Thank you for that. What is the proper posture, by the way? Well, you know, People should do whatever they can. So for some people, if they have physical limitations, they need to do the practice lying down. That's fine. You know, there's a tendency maybe to fall asleep, but maybe you'll have a good rest, you know, but, or maybe you need to do the practice uh, sitting up, or maybe you need to be leaning back in a chair. But if you can sit up straight, it's helpful to sort of sit forward in a chair if you're using a chair so you're not using a back support. It's good to get the, the knee a little lower than the hip, right? Because... If, if your knees are higher than the hip, it's really hard to sit up straight. But if yeah. you get the knees a little lower than the hips, you know, and it's quite easy to sit up straight. You want a concave quality in your lower back so you're not hunched up, but you're, you know. Sometimes people use different images. Like let's say there's a, a cord tied to a pulley up in the ceiling. Somebody's kind of pulling you up, right? So you're pulled up towards the ceiling, which elongates the spine, right? Mm -hmm. So you're elongating the spine, but then you want to relax at the same time. Let your shoulders relax. You can let your hands just drop to your sides and hang loosely. And then maybe just lift the hands up and just let them fall on the thighs wherever they fall. You know, if you put them too far forward, you're going to start to hunch over. If you bring them too far back, you're going to get your chest tense, right? So you find a spot for your body that works for you. And sometimes I just say find a posture that for you feels relatively uplifted, erect, naturally dignified, awake, stable, and relaxed. Okay. And people practice with the eyes open, with the eyes closed, with the gaze lowered, uh, sometimes with the mouth open, with the mouth closed. There's lots of different techniques, and they all have different effects. Okay. And and not a back support, though. I'm just going to double check that. That's uh, what's what. If you can important? train yourself to sit up without a back support, that's helpful. But again, if somebody needs to use it because they have back issues, that's fine. Of course. Okay. And I'm sure this is individual. Um, is there any particular place that would be better than another, like a, a room or lighting or whatever? Yeah, well, if you can find a place that's relatively calm, you know, and a set aside a space, if you can, if you're in your house, you have the luxury of having a dedicated space. My wife and I have a meditation room up on our second floor that that's what it's for. It's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. uh, but not everybody has that. But sometimes you create a little corner in one of your rooms or, you know, you, but you do your best. I mean, I, I, I practiced in prison for 14 years in absolute chaos. And I used to go in the trash closet and clean it up because it was always kind of disgusting and then put some brooms and things outside so people had access to it. And I'd take a metal chair and go in and sit in there. In the summer, it was just like a sauna. It was just pouring sweat, you know. But, I, and, you know, I would go sit in there. Or I'd, or I'd sit on the upper bunks I, instead of wanting the lower bunk because I could kind of get out of the noise. And, you know. But anyway, I, I practiced with, in chaos for 14 years. So you do what you can. 
And actually, you know, if you can learn to practice in the midst of chaos and noise, then you can practice anywhere. Yeah. I guess, does being non-religious, you mentioned this, you hinted to this already, but does it, does it preclude people from getting the most out of meditation or mindfulness? Uh, you know, I describe myself as being spiritual, yet not religious. So mm-hmm. uh, how, does it, how does religion inform or influence a practice, or is it just all neuroscience? How would you put that? You know, I think there's a lot of people today that describe themselves as spiritual, not religious, you know. I mean, I, I, I'm a great lover of all, of all of our religious and spiritual traditions. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of religious strife and, you know, we're human beings. So we get fear-based and fear takes over. And, you know, in the name of religion, all kinds of horrors have been done. We all know that. But I also think our great religions have kept alive goodness as well. I think if it wasn't for the great religions, we would have descended into chaos a long time ago, right? So, um, you know, and I think all of the great religious traditions have their contemplative side, their inner side. Um, and so you can find forms of meditation and contemplation in all in Judaism and Christianity and Islam and Sufism and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and, uh, and uh, you know, and lesser known traditions um, and Taoism, certainly. Um, um, so, and, and then of course we have a very large sort of secular mainstream mindfulness movement today, which is great. And, uh, you know, because you can bring mindfulness into schools and policing and different places where it has to be secular because, you you know, you can't um, bring patently religious things into a, in a, in a public setting like that. Um, but I still think our great religious traditions really inform. Uh, and, you know, interesting, even the people in the mainstream mindfulness movement, they may, may start learning it in a completely secular context. But if they want to go deeper into retreats, they end up usually going to Buddhist meditation centers just because that's where the retreat centers are. Now, I don't have to become a Buddhist to do that. Right. You know, you don't have to become a Buddhist to go even, you know, Buddhism is not so much a religion, but at the same time, it, it, it is in a sense, and it has wonderful values because there's also the other piece that the religions hold is the whole ethical construct, you know, of, of how we lead an ethical life, right? And then there's the community and the fellowship aspect, you know? So, you know, but I, I think, you know, there's lots of ways to access these things, whether we're, whether we're inclined towards being part of a religious tradition or not. And and I think as the secular mainstream mindfulness grows, there'll be more and more sort of secular retreat centers. And, and you know, they may, they may end up becoming like almost new spiritual paths or even new religions that call themselves secular, but in a sense, they're really becoming like another religion in a sense, you know? So, I mean, it's just human beings coming together. How do we evolve? How do we, how do we grow? How do we get our needs met? Right. Yep. So I, 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 so I think, I don't see any reason to reject the religious tradition, but I also think it's very important that that we do have these mainstream kind of secular forms of mindfulness and meditation available, so it can just be available to everyone without without having getting to the issues of of how people feel or don't feel about religion. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. So, uh, I guess um, I do have one question that's just kind of semi unrelated, but it's um, it's something that I've been asked by a listener. I'm trying to develop a clear answer, and I think you're perfect candidate to help me answer it. I actually mentioned um, Viktor Frankl, and he mentioned it to me, and I'd never heard of him in this context. Uh, simply put, I'll, I'll boil it down. Do you think hardship or adversity is necessary for people to make radical change? That was in your case. It yeah, well, away, I've, been asked that question. I've been asked that question a lot, and it's a $64,000 question in a way. You know, we often hear about the person that goes through cancer and somehow survives, and their whole life has changed. Or, you know, I went to prison, or, you know, at, you know, can, can, is, there, is there an easier way, right? So we have to go through such hardship. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think there's really an answer to that we all have different, in, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, we'd say we have different karma, you know, that there's 
we all go through gazillions of lifetimes and who knows where any of us are and whatever any of us our karmic background is. So it's very hard to know, but even absent, you know, a belief in multiple lifetimes or karma, um, you know, there's, a, there's just a, just a, a great diversity of how people change and evolve and somebody may have to hit rock bottom and just go to really, you know, you know, absolute pain before they're, before they can wake up and other people, it may, it may, it may be a lot easier. I will say that it's very important. And, and I think, you know, radical responsibility, I feel is kind of an antidote to, to the culture of blame and shame and, 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 a, and kind of a cultural trend towards reinforcing victim mindsets and blame and, and, um, and, you know, that, I understand how it arises. I just don't think it's useful. And, and I certainly don't think it helps victims to encourage people to, to you know, to establish their identity around some, you know, uh, their part of some class of victimization. I don't think it really helps them. I mean, it's certainly good to validate when people have experienced victimization and just have that validated. But ultimately, I, I want to encourage people to embrace choice because that's how they can transform their own lives. And um, so... The reason I bring that up is because there's something called the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. Yes. And there's been a lot of work done in education around this. And there's, I can't remember her name. There's a professor that's very written a lot of the books on this, but a fixed mindset is when we basically think I'm the way I am. I have the level of intelligence I have. I'm good at this. I'm bad at that. You know, I suck at that. I'm, you know, that, that's who I am and that's the way I'm going to be. And that's it. That's a fixed mindset. A growth mindset is, you know, it's all malleable and I can grow and I can learn. And I can change. Right. And so that's also connected to what we call the idea of post-traumatic growth. So a lot of the research into trauma over the years and also in aversive childhood uh, experiences and the impact on children and some children, how we see some people experience really aversive stuff and then thrive. And some children kind of get stuck and, and the trauma really limits their lives. And so what's the difference and how does that play out? And there's a lot of factors involved, but what it does point to is the experience of trauma can actually be a springboard towards further growth and evolution. So, you know, I think we are meant to be challenged and we need to bring challenge into our lives. Now, we, we don't want anybody to be challenged beyond their resources and traumatized, but it's, when that does happen to people, I don't think we have to necessarily completely treat them like fragile victims. We can realize that actually we all have innate strengths and resilience, and that may be, you know, what for that person becomes the source of their transformation. And I don't want to, it's not, it's not like I'm going to come to Samuels and get over your trauma. No, no, not at all. But I don't want to get in the way of it either. I don't go, you're traumatized and you're stuck and that's where you're going to be. Just be a victim and stay there. I'll be your rescuer. No, that's not helpful at all. Right. So I think just realizing that, that, you know, throughout human history, we've seen that people respond to challenges in amazing ways. And it really, it is what catalyzes transformation. Now, now, how that has to happen for any individual, I mean, that's there's no way to say that, and I wouldn't want to say that, right? But I think it's good just, just to recognize that that whatever hardships we can experience in life, we can, we can leverage those for our own personal growth and transformation. All right. Yeah, well, I really hope people can listen to inspiring messages like that, listen to podcasts like this, and read books like yours, and, and you know, and not necessarily have to hit rock bottom to, to start to make radical change. You can do it right now. Um, well, I guess that uh, that's pretty good, uh, Dr. Mall. Is there anything final you'd like to say on it to wrap us up or anything I missed that you might like to highlight? Um, and I will ask you where people can, you can direct us to all your stuff in a minute, but just something as far as the, a message or, or what we're talking about today. Did 
I yeah, I think so. You know, um, you know, we all we're all faced with choices all the time, and you know, two of the particular ways we live our life. One is to kind of be in a back in a caboose of the train, so to speak, and we're just kind of getting dragged around. Or my teacher had an expression: either you learn to ride the donkey, or the donkey rides you. And the donkey is all of our conditioning and life circumstances, right? And, or we just think life is happening to us and we feel victimized by life. So, you know, we can get dragged around by life or we can make the choice and it's a heroic choice to put ourselves in the driver's seat and embrace choice and use mind training and breath regulation and physiological training and all the ways to get back in the driver's seat of our own life and start living a choice. And when we do so, life becomes this glorious adventure full of possibility. And so I, I, I dedicated my life to help as many people see that possibility. And it's not like I'm being critical of someone when they feel really stuck in that, you know, uh, you know, I, it, I feel tremendous compassion. And I want to in any way I can help them and support them. Uh, but there's always a way, no matter how far down we are or how helpless or powerless we feel, there is a way to begin, you know, finding our way back into empowering ourselves to live a choice and embrace the, agency that we all really have in our lives and start living from choice rather than just kind of in this kind of, of just kind of coping with something we feel is happening to us. And, and it really, it's, it's that bifurcation in life. And, and it, it breaks my heart that more people don't find the opportunity to make that leap. And, and I certainly um, uh, hope that I can provide that opportunity for as many people as possible. Excellent. It breaks my heart too. And that's why I have this show because I want to encourage people if you, and I do got to say that adopting choice towards taking radical responsibility, I'll, I'll add radical in now is really my conception of heroism too. Um, so to listeners, let me say then, please share this interview. Um, I already got lots of practical advice out of this on that. And I know you know somebody who's going to, who needs to hear this interview. So please share it with that person. Uh, you can also ask questions to, for your own clarity. And you can do that in the comments section, or you can go to the Mr. Brightside Facebook page, facebook.com slash matthewbolton.ca. Dr. Mall, where should people go if they want to connect with you directly? Or where would you like to refer people to learn more and, and give it all? Uh, I'll put it all up here. Line it all up. Okay. All right. Well, my basic website is fleetmall.com. You can go there and find a lot about my work. Uh, the institute to which I offer a lot of my programs is called the HeartMind Institute, and that's heartmindinstitute.co, not .com, just .co. Then for the prison work, um, prisonmindfulness.org is the work we do with at-risk incarcerated and returning youth and adults. And then mindfulpublicsafety.org is the work we do with police and correctional officers, probation and parole, and, all, and public safety officials and healthcare professionals and so forth. Um, the prison hospice work that I started, that's, uh, MPHA National Prison Hospice Association, MPHA.org. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's, that's probably enough to get, to get, get people started. You're oh, I'll, I'll mention one more site. Get in there. The book, uh, to learn more about my book, Radical Responsibility, uh, the tagline of which is, uh, how to overcome blame, uh, fearlessly live our highest purpose and become an unstoppable force for good. Uh, so radicalresponsibilitybook.com, radicalresponsibilitybook.com. So you go there, you can read all about the book. You can read all the accolades by people like Tara Brock and others. Uh, you can get a free chapter. You can download a free chapter. And then right from that page, if you want to buy it on Barnes and Noble or Amazon or 
indie books or wherever you can buy it right to one of those services from that page. But if you want to learn about the book first, radicalresponsibilitybook.com. Yes. Okay. That's great. I am looking forward to reading that now. Um, Thank you very much again for your time. Uh, I know it's getting a little late there for you and you're giving us this rich sample in your deep experience and uh, I'll be learning from this again. And I very much appreciate speaking here today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much, Matt. Great, great pleasure to be with you. And I wish your audience all the best. Excellent. And to listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to Dr. Maul and that you might now dive deeper into learning what mindfulness and radical responsibility can do for you in moving beyond blame, fearlessly living your higher purpose and becoming an unstoppable force for good in the world. I'll see you guys next time. Mr. Brightside, your time out to refresh, refuel, and refocus your mind and energy toward building an optimistic framework for flourishing. Life is good. It's up to you to choose the bright side.